Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that no one is here by accident tonight. That no one can come to Jesus unless you draw them. And I thank you that everyone here, whether they're here in person or listening online, has been drawn by the Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit. You are with us. You are in this place. You're here to speak to us and to draw us closer to Jesus, to take us into the fullness of truth. We thank you, we welcome you, and I give you the platform. Thank you for your truth. We love you, we adore you, and we thank you for what you're going to say to us tonight. Amen. 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 Awesome. How are we? That's good. Everyone good? Excellent. Where's Maddie? Now, if anyone misbehaves, Maddie will remove you tonight. <laughs> so good. Awesome. Well, I am uh, excited about tonight's word, and, and um, me and David, <laughs> David and I, I should say, let's get the grammar right. And I always like to keep you guessing a bit, so you may think it's about joy, but it's not. Otherwise, there'll be someone sitting at home going, oh, not joy. <laughs> oh, not joy again. So it's never... I always like to, to include a bit of a twist, so keep you guessing. Some of you may have seen this and some of you may have not, but there was this funny post that someone put online, and I've seen it a few times, and it says... Um, if Paul saw the American church today, we'd be getting a letter. Has anyone seen that? And I guess it would go for Australia or anywhere around the world, but it made me chuckle. Um, if Paul saw the US church today, we'd be getting a letter. And I thought, yeah, he'd, he'd, um, every church would probably get a letter. And I thought, I wonder what would be in that letter if Paul um, sent it. And, you know, Paul, Paul's letters were hard. They always in, contained encouragement, but they also contained rebuke or... Uh, he was always trying to bring order to, to the churches he wrote to. But you can imagine getting the letter and, you know, he arrives in the, in the letterbox and you see who it's from and... 
you're kind of excited, but your heart is also racing because you're like, oh, what is going to be in this letter? <laughs> you know, it's more likely to be a correction than an encouragement. And so, you know, someone might open it, one person, and everyone else is kind of nervous. What does it say? What does it say? And they want to know what it says, but they also don't want to know what it says. Paul's letters were a bit like that, but he even said it. Um, he said, though my letters hurt you, they might hurt you for a little while, but they're actually um, for your benefit. And so then I came across someone, uh, and someone actually asked him this question. His name's N.T. Wright, and he's a, he's a biblical scholar in the UK, and quite an amazing biblical scholar. And someone asked him that question, and they said, if Paul... Uh, was going to write a letter today, what, what would he write about? And um, what do you think? If, if Paul was going to write a letter to the church today, whether it's the church in America, the church in Australia, or even our church, what do you reckon he'd say? Or what do you reckon he'd address? And I'm, I'm happy to take answers from the floor. It's a hard one, right? Anyone want to guess? Yeah? Division. Division. Very good. Yeah? Partiality. Partiality. All right. Good. Any other takers? Excellent. Um, anyone else? I think Ash got it, though we'd flip it. And it's interesting what Paul says in Second Philippians chapter 2, but Ash actually hit it on the head, and I'll show you what he says. Paul says this. He says... He says, make my joy complete by doing something. And that's where I got the title from that. Paul is actually alluding to the fact that his joy isn't complete. That there is something stopping Paul from being completely, having, or having complete joy. Though, of course, he was joyful in, in the Lord. And he spoke about rejoicing always. That's, there's no doubt about that. But Paul is saying there's one thing that he wants from the church and if the church got it, then it would make his joy complete. And he says this in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 2 of Philippians. He says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in one mind. And so when Ash said division, I think she hit the nail on the head. Paul is talking about unity. And he's saying, guys, make my joy complete by being united, not divided. And the fact that he was saying, make my joy complete, tells you his joy wasn't complete. And he was trying to unite the church. So this biblical scholar actually said that. He said, 
If Paul could see today's church, he would not only be astonished by our disunity, he would be horrified that we don't care. And he said that would be one thing, and the other thing he said Paul would write about would be holiness, which I think relates to what David was saying as well. But uh, unity and holiness, so I would say unity and purity are probably the two things Paul would write to us about. And in, if you read carefully, it's almost as though in every one of Paul's letters, he's making an appeal to unity. He's not just talking about it in Philippians. He's, he, there's an element of it in every single one of his letters. Even in Romans, you might think, well, where is it in Romans? You know, Romans about justification. And he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. He's talking about unity. In um, 1 Corinthians, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He's talking about it there. In Ephesians chapter 4, we don't have to put these scriptures up, he talks about preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So it's, it's like all of his letters are peppered with this idea of unity. And it is something we will see a little later on that Jesus values I don't know if I can say most, but it's definitely up there in what Jesus values. And Paul gives us the keys to unity and also shows us the enemies of unity, and that's what I'm going to go into tonight. And it's actually, uh, it's interesting, and you, you may have all um, known this or, or heard of this in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 to 4 when the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost when the church is born and we know Peter then says a speech and 3,000 people are saved that day but they've been waiting and praying for 40 days after Jesus' resurrection and Jesus says wait until the Holy Spirit is poured out and it um, Verse 2 says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were all of one accord in one place. And then it goes on to say, and then suddenly there came a sound from heaven and the Holy Spirit fell. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. They all got tongues as a fire. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And we can all be sitting here thinking, man, what an amazing experience. Wouldn't we all love to experience that. But it's fascinating to me that he starts it by saying they were in one place and they were with one accord. And not one word is in the Bible for no reason. He could have said they were just in a room, but he said they were in one place in one accord. So his... Uh, one place, one accord. Uh, my first car was a Honda Accord. That's not what he's talking about. There weren't 120 people in a Honda Accord. He's talking about 120 people who were united. 
And I'm sure if all of us got together and stayed in this room for 40 days, hey, we'd, maybe we'll get there. Maybe we wouldn't. I don't know. But they are in unity. <clears throat> now, what does unity mean? Because there's an important distinction to make. Unity is not uniformity. And a lot of people think unity means uniformity. And that's a really important distinction to make. When you have unity without diversity, that's when you have uniformity, when everyone looks the same, acts the same, talks the same, you, tr you try and eradicate any differences. That's uniformity. When you think of a uniform where everyone is dressed the same because you're trying to eliminate all difference. But that is not unity, that is uniformity. And so when I'm saying unity without diversity is uniformity, I'm not talking about the diversity of today. I think you know what I mean. And unity is actually only possible uh, when there is diversity. Unity is only possible when there is diversity. So there's, I don't know how many people in this room, everyone God has given different gifts to, different personality, um, different trials, different life experiences. That's diversity. And unity requires that diversity. Unity requires th these differences. And when you, you think of examples of diversity and unity, the, the obvious one is a marriage. The Bible says, man will leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Talk about getting diversity, a man and a woman and bringing them together as one. They are definitely not the same. They are very, very different, and they are become united. So that is diversity in unity, and it's essential for biblical unity as well. Because uniformity is creating robots. We don't want to create robots out of you. <clears throat> so, God celebrates our uniqueness. And our uniqueness is never a problem until, even, for example, uniqueness of opinion, you can have different opinions, except when your opinions begin to contradict the Word of God. And that's when diversity has to be brought into line. As long as we're all under the Word of God, we can be as different as, as, as we want. We can even disagree, as long as we're in accordance with the Word of God. And First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 12 to 27, is an amazing scripture, and I'll just read it real quick. It's, it's a long one, but he says here, You are Christ's body and individually parts of it, every single one of you. That's all right, I'll read it here. For just as the body is one, yet it has many parts. And all the parts of the body, all the parts, not just some, all the parts, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. 
By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one part. Paul keeps saying this. The body isn't one part. It's many parts. And he, I love this example he says. He says, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, uh, it is not for this reason any less of a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any lesser part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, if we were all the same, if we all had one function, one, one gift, if we were all the same, if the whole body were an eye, where would we be hearing from? Where would the hear- hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? So you get the idea. I don't have to read the whole thing. But he's talking about diversity or unity, even in diversity. So you want to see pictures of diversity and unity? I've already given one of uh, marriage. I'll give you another one. Um, Our pastors. Pastors Rabs and Tony. Talk about diversity. But unity, very different, with very different gifts, but united. And some people might say, oh, well, and I remember in Brazil someone actually asked the question, how are you, how are you two together? Because in that person's mind, people should be, if people are leading a church, they should be the same or they should be similar. But that is not true unity. That is uniformity. And so true unity is when you have God's creation, God's unique creation coming together as one. And that's what God wants from all of us. It's interesting. I remember being fascinated by this years ago when when I discovered what a what a cancer cell actually is. Because I used to, you know, not that I've ever studied it, but I used to think, okay, can- cancer is a sickness or cancer is a disease or whatever it is. But a cancer cell is actually a cell that has no purpose. That's all it is. Every cell in your body has a function, has a purpose, a skin cell, a brain cell, a heart cell, a liver cell, whatever they may be, they all have a purpose. A cancer cell does not. All it does is replicate, take up space, um, rob other cells of their place, rob other cells of their nourishment, but it actually has no purpose, no function, and that's why it kills a body. It grows and grows and grows. It feeds on the body but it actually has no function and no purpose. And so when we think of the body of Christ like that, um, if there is someone in the body of Christ who believes they have no purpose or wants to bring about 
division or something of that nature because they don't want to be a part of the body. They will actually, like a cancer cell, um, what they're striving for in the body is death, whether they realise it or not. And so you get an idea of how important unity is when you think of a cancer cell in the body and what it does. It's interesting in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says this. He says, he, sp- he says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He doesn't say, um, Be diligent to create unity. He says, Be diligent to preserve unity. Which... When you think about it, it means there is unity in the Holy Spirit and in Christ, but it has to be preserved. And if it's not being preserved, then it's being destroyed. Now, true biblical unity, like when you think of the the upper room in Acts, the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is what united them. And it's like where the presence of the Holy Spirit is, there is unity. When the Holy Spirit turns up, there's unity. And I've been, I've been in, in those moments in, in churches when you know the Holy Spirit has fallen. And it's like everyone in the room knows it. And every uh, negative thought or feeling anyone has toward anyone is just evaporated. And that's what happens in the presence of God when the Holy Spirit... Has has anyone experienced that or is it just me? I'm sure you have. So... On that day of Pentecost, Paul says, um, Paul says this. Sorry, Peter says this. Peter gets up to speak and he quotes Joel. And this is in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 to 10. And it says, that, And it shall be in the last days that I will pour out my spirit upon all mankind, all mankind, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bondservants, both men and women, I will in those days pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. It's interesting here that when the Holy Spirit comes, when the Holy Spirit is in a group, he breaks every barrier that would create division. He breaks every barrier that would create division. He says, I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind, every race, every tongue, every tribe. And that's why when you think about it this way, um, Paul says, there's no longer Greek, there's no longer Jew, but then... In Revelation, it says they're standing before um, 
in heaven is every tongue and every tribe. So there you go. There, again, even in heaven, there's diversity, every tongue, every tribe. They're different, but they're united. And so Paul's saying, when the Holy Spirit comes, there is really no more race. There's no more culture. When the Holy Spirit comes, all mankind, no economic difference, no uh, this economic class or that economic class. He says, sons and daughters, I'll, I'll pour out my spirit, your sons and daughters, and your young men, and your old men. So he's basically saying, age goes away as well. You're not separated or divided by age. He pours out his spirit on the young and the old. Your sons and daughters. Gender. There's no difference. He's pouring out on sons and daughters, men and women. Of course, there's differences. I'm not, don't, don't get all funny with me, but you, you know what I'm saying. And he even talks about my bond servants, both men and women, even slaves and those who are free, basically breaking every division economically and socially in the hierarchy, whatever you want to call it. He breaks it all. So when the Holy Spirit comes, it's a level playing field. There's no more division. <clears throat> he, he destroys every division. And so we have to be very careful not to let the loud culture outside here dictate division when Christ has brought unity. And unity in Christ trumps any difference or division that the world is trying to bring. And so Paul, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, he gives us, he pretty much gives us the reason why there can be division in the church. Do you know what he says? In verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So he's basically said, and I'll go back to the previous uh, verse, he says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What is vain conceit? Because he's kind of suggesting that there's a lack of unity or there's division because of these things. There's selfish ambition and vain conceit. I spoke last time I preached about selfish ambition. I'm not going to go into that so much tonight. I want to focus on vain conceit because it has a very interesting meaning. Vain conceit or conceit is an English translation of a Greek word and the Greek word is kinodoxia. Uh, kinos means empty and doxa is glory. So it means to be glory empty. Paul says, do nothing out of being glory empty. Glory empty. Where 
means being starved of validation and approval. It means not being assured of your significance and your value. It means starving for respect and honour. It means being insecure. It means feeling like you don't matter or you don't count. So Paul is saying, if there's a lack of unity, it's because of this glory vacuum in you or in us. And this is what causes the disunity and the division. It's that in the heart, there is a glory vacuum. And so there's, that means in the church, there's gossip, there's competition, there's different things that can be going on because of that glory vacuum. So I'm going to touch on probably four or five um, manifestations of disunity in the church. And um, I've never been involved in any of these. But maybe two or three of you have been. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> but let's, let's go through them. And I think they're very instructive and they'll help us. All right? So these are manifestations of division. And Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. And so if we want to be united, we need to address these things in our own hearts. I need to address them in my heart. And then that will actually lead us to be united, right? The first one is gossip. Who did um, Chinese whispers in year two? You know, where you start off with Mary had a little lamb and then five minutes later it was Mary's married Joe in the backyard. <clears throat> It's, that's gossip. It's a distortion of the truth. Because gossip actually creates misinformation. Gossip is a coward's way of dealing with a problem. If there's a problem, you should go direct. Or you should at least go to someone who's involved in the solution. Not someone who you think should be involved in the solution, but someone who is actually involved in the solution. Does that make sense? Yeah. <clears throat> Gossip devalues relationship, connection and trust. And this is... The really interesting thing about gossip, we can actually attract it to ourselves. Now look at this in Luke chapter 8 verse 18. This is amazing when it comes up. This is Jesus speaking and he says, Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, 
Even what he seems to have will be taken away from him. This is a really important biblical principle which basically says what you are open to you will attract more of. And he's saying be careful how you hear and what you're listening to. Because if you like it more of it will come. If you welcome it more of it will come. Whereas if you shut it down or you close your ears, then less of it will come. What I receive, I will get more of. So if you're constantly having people come to you with gossip, and this isn't to shame anyone, uh, it's, it's actually an opportunity to make a decision. And often, we don't know what's going on. But when the light comes on, we go, oh my goodness, I've never seen it that way before. Thank you, Jesus, now I can change. If you value it, or if, if people are constantly coming to you with it, you've got to ask yourself the question, why? And it may be that you are attracting it because you value it. And so we'll often get up here and we'll say, God, you inhabit the praises of your people. So if God inhabits praise, who inhabits gossip? And I know I've been in, in that situation where I thought, man, I really want to tell this person what that person did. And it's, it, was, it was like this gnawing, like, I, I have to tell someone about what that person did. And you know what it is? When you think hard and deep, you're not just wanting to um, engage with someone and well, I guess this will be a nice topic to talk about. We don't have anything else to talk about. <laughs> no, there's, there's so much to it. And often it's because gossip is used to change someone's conduct or their position or their manner through manipulation. So gossip says, I'm going to try and rework this and I'm going to try and somehow, indirectly, control that person or change them. <clears throat> and the Bible says that manipulation and control are witchcraft. So... We might think gossip is just an innocent activity and yeah, I know, I probably shouldn't do it. But it's so much more than just having a casual conversation, sharing some news. Gossip perverts the beauty of the tongue 
in the same way that prostitution perverts the beauty of a marriage. So, um, that the, if, if the tongue was given as a gift for building up and creating and edifying, then gossip uses it to kill, steal and destroy. And it's like one of the greatest tools in the enemy's arsenal, gossip. Because it destroys on both sides. It destroys the person you're gossiping about and it destroys you. And so the enemy gets two for the price of one. And he's always looking for a bargain. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 to 32, Paul says this. He says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We often take do not grieve the Holy Spirit out of context and say do not grieve the Holy Spirit, but look at the context. He's talking about using your tongue. And one of the main ways we can grieve the Holy Spirit is by letting words proceed from our mouth that are not for edification and not for grace. So we all know the power of the tongue. We all know it. He goes on to say... um, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So it's interesting there's this concept in Ecclesiastes. I don't know exactly where it is, but um, Solomon, I guess, speaks about a jar of oil and he says that it's ruined because one or two flies got in it. And he says the whole thing becomes putrid because of beautiful perfume, he calls it, not even oil, it's perfume that someone has created which is beautiful, smells amazing, but it's been putrefied by a couple of flies that have gotten in it, and the whole batch is, is destroyed. And it's like that when he, he's talking about that perfume. It's, it's the anointing, and it, all it takes is a couple of malicious words, a bit of gossip to actually destroy the anointing and to destroy the whole batch and to actually bring division and to destroy unity. And it's interesting he says flies. Because what are flies? What are, I mean, what are flies attracted to? Flies are attracted to death. Flies are attracted to decay. That's what flies are attracted to. <clears throat> and so I want to encourage us that this is this is really important for us as a body. Yeah, this isn't, this isn't just so you can um, have a better relationship with your family 
and stop gossiping in your family. This is about us being united in Christ, in one mind, one spirit, in Christ. Because that's how Christ wants us to be. That's what would make Paul's joy complete. <clears throat> so, Paul says, whatever, let your words be used for edification. So the, target of, the use of your words is meant to redeem someone, not destroy them. And a lot of people, um, and this is another thing you need to be careful of, because even if you're not intending to gossip, often it's just venting. I've just got to get this off my chest. Or you're just venting emotion, which you're giving it to a person when it should be given to God. Another one. So first one, gossip. Second one, getting even. Getting even. And another way to say this is to kind of um, wanting justice for yourself. And in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church this time uh, with a correction and trying to bring order. And they had um, one group of believers trying to, or suing another group of believers through court. Uh, and what are they after? If, if you're suing someone, you're after justice. And, you, and I'm not so much talking about suing someone here, right? Because I don't know of any brothers and sisters here suing anyone, thank God. But I want to get to the idea of getting even whether it's amongst ourselves or even with anyone else. Because um, the pursuit of justice, or, or wanting to get even, is only blessed by God in the measure that I've died to myself. So me wanting to pursue justice against someone, God only blesses it to the extent to which I have died to myself because I can actually be pursuing someone or trying to get even with someone out of my own anger, my own resentment, my own bitterness. And so wanting to get justice, whether it's from God or for yourself, God only blesses it when you've actually died to yourself in that area. And someone might say, well, no, they need to learn a lesson. Or I'm not going to let them get away with it. That's not fair. But without realising it, we can actually become their judge. And God says, judge no one lest you be judged. And do you want to hear something amazing that Paul says? Like, think about how radical this is. Yeah? In um, chapter 7, verse 7. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. Again, he's talking about these lawsuits between the believers. Chapter 7, verse 7. No, don't have it? It's okay, I'll read it. He says, 
Paul says this. He says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. The fact that you have a lawsuit with your brother and sister means you've lost already. So what he's saying is you can go on to win that lawsuit and win the money. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. It's an utter failure. And he's basically saying whatever you're going to gain from the lawsuit, even if you win, you are losing so much more than whatever you're going to gain by suing someone. Does that make sense? Why? What are you, what are you losing? Unity. He says, whatever you're going to gain, even if you win, the money, you might win 500 grand. You might win, you might not even be in it for money. You just want the court to say, He's right and he's wrong. Whatever you're, he says, whatever you gain, you've already lost. When you think about it that way, it shows you the extent to which God wants unity in his body. So it's easy to think of unity as just this, you know, getting together and having a few biscuits and but no, there's a depth of unity that God wants in our hearts and in, it, in the body. And I think that scripture there sums it up perfectly. What's being destroyed, Paul says, is the concept of a body being members of one another. <laughs> Actually... Becky, can you go to the next verse? Oh, no, it's, it's up there. He says, look what he says. Look at Paul's radical view of unity. He says, why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? That's a crazy idea. He's saying it's better to be cheated than to bring division or have someone turn against someone in the body. And of course, he's, when he's saying, um, why not rather be wronged? That's where forgiveness comes into it. That's where... Offence has to be dropped, all that, of course. But he's basically saying, you should almost rather to be wronged than want division in the body. All right. A few more. So we've said, what have we said? Gossip. We've said getting even. Another one is offence. And we've spoken about this a lot. I don't want to go into too much detail about it I'm running out of time <clears throat> but we don't get to choose uh, whether we get hurt 
We don't get to choose whether we get betrayed. We don't get to choose whether we get criticised. We don't get to choose how other people will treat us. Right? All we can choose is how we respond to that. So there's different ways to respond to it. Someone might say, well, no, I am going to choose not to be betrayed again. And they close themselves off. Uh, from getting hurt or betrayed again, but what they've actually done is close themselves off from love altogether. And so, yes, they won't get hurt or betrayed again, but they'll also have no love. And so being part of a body, being part of one body means being open and being vulnerable and being open to the potential that someone might even wrong you. Because the alternative to that is to say, well, everyone, keep, keep away. Like, you can come close, but not too close because I've got to keep these walls up and protect myself from everyone so that no one hurts me. But really, what you're closing yourself off to is the body, right, which you are supposedly a part of, which is there to actually heal you, bless you, benefit you, grow you, nourish you. And so we don't, uh, we can't control that. But what we can control is how we respond to it. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, offence creeps in, uh, or we we choose to deal with it by getting offended. Now, do you know why? Do you know why? Um, the enemy loves offence so much or even disunity I'll tell you why if you look at John chapter 17 verse 20 this will bring home how much Jesus values unity Sorry, Becky, I'm putting you on the spot here. John chapter 17, verse 20. This is Jesus just before he goes to the cross. He says this prayer, he's praying to the Father. It's the longest prayer he prays. And it's just before he goes to the cross. And I'm not going to read it all, it's very long. But I'm going to highlight this section, verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone. He's talking about his disciples. I'm not praying just for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Can we go to the next line? That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that we may be one in him, that the world may believe that you sent me. He's saying unity, the world will believe in him if we are one. That the world may believe that you sent me. The world is waiting to see unity in the church, then they'll believe. 
That is crazy that he says unity is a witness to him. So then you wonder why the enemy loves gossip, why the enemy loves offense. Because he's not only destroying the person that it's targeting, it not only destroys you, but it also destroys the potential for the world to see Christ and to believe in him. Wow. It's interesting that Jesus says it's impossible that no offences come. It's impossible that no offences come. So they will come, but how you deal with it. So you think about uh, bitterness, and he, the Bible talks about a root of bitterness, and think of a tree with roots, that the roots grow and grow and grow, and that tree gets taller and the tree gets stronger and uprooting that tree becomes way harder over time until you've got this massive oak tree that is almost impossible to displace. And that's why the Bible says don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And in Proverbs it says a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. That's how strong offence, how it can destroy someone. The last one is suspicion. I spoke about being vulnerable, and vulnerable means uh, there being a door for someone to come in and potentially hurt you. But that's the only way how you can remain open to love. We've covered that. But suspicion is another one of those things that actually builds a wall around you and cuts you off from the body. Because if you're constantly looking for what people are doing wrong or where there's the potential for wrong, again, it's the concept of you will attract what you are seeking. And then you'll focus on it, you'll dwell on it, and that becomes, your whole life becomes around seeing who is going to let you down next. I don't want, there's a lot more to say, but I'm running out of time. So, What do we do about all this? And I love that Paul, and I'm wrapping up real soon, that Paul gives us the answer before he even gives us the problem. So let's go back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Where is it? Okay. He says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
any comfort from his love, any, just go back one sec, oh yeah, any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Holy Spirit, any affection and mercy, next, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And then he goes on to say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain deceit. So Paul is diagnosing the problem as selfish ambition and vain conceit, but he gives us the answer to it in verse 1. And he's saying, if you're not united, go back to verse 1, if, yeah, if you're not united, you need the consolation of Christ. The comfort of his love, the fellowship of the Spirit, and in those you'll have affection and mercy. Remember how I said vain conceit is being uh, glory empty, being a vacuum, and just an empty hole, like a black hole? Well, Paul gives us the answer to, fu- fu- to fill that glory emptiness or that glory black hole in us and that is I'll read it in another version Uh, the encouragement of being united with Christ comfort from his love common sharing in the spirit tenderness and compassion so if I was to say it this way if you're caught up in gossip then there's something in your heart that needs to be healed and it's only healed by these things. And that is encouragement in Christ, receiving his love to fill that glory empty hole and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And that is almost the process of coming to Christ. First, he encourages you. You get saved and it's amazing. All you feel is his encouragement because he saved you. And then he comforts you with his love. And then there's fellowship with the Holy Spirit. There's tenderness and you experience his compassion. And then those things actually begin to drop away. Because they can't stand the truth. They can't stand the light of Christ and they have to melt away in his presence so I'm not here to stand up and hear and say gossip's bad you should stop gossiping I'm here to encourage us and say there is the antidote to gossip there is the antidote to division there is the antidote um, to wanting to get even there's the antidote to offence and it's in the love of God that when he loves you he fills that emptiness inside you So when you experience his love, you can truly love. And the thought of manipulating another person through gossip actually horrifies you. Leaves a sour taste in your mouth that you almost can't even bring yourself to do it anymore. So I'll leave you with that. I think we are here to be one 
and being one is so much deeper than we realise. And we're on a journey to that. I think as a body we're very, we're very far away from that, but that's okay, we're, on, we're in this together. And I just, actually, I just remembered this, this proverb, it's, it's not a proverb from the Bible, but it says, if you want to go, um, how's it go, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And so sometimes people can come to church because they find church is helping them, they find church is good for them, they find church is good for their family, it brings their family together or whatever it might be. But church, that's not the intention of the body of Christ. The intention of the body of Christ isn't to come and just get built up so that you can go and enjoy the fruits of it outside of here. Someone might come and get healed and that's great, God bless them. But we're actually here to be one. One body. Very unique individuals that God has created with his own hand, with his own breath. And there's someone sitting here who needs what God has created in you. And that's where God is taking us as one body. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We thank you for your truth. That it sparks something in us. That the scales fall off our eyes when we hear your truth. That light comes. That Light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't comprehend it. We thank you for your truth that brings life, that that brings restoration in each one, Lord. Thank you. You are moving us forward individually and as a body united in you. Thank you that you would, by your grace, knit us together in one accord for your glory. If there's anyone here harboring that offence, You can give it to the Lord right now. The Lord will take that burden. Thank you. You lift that weight, Christ. 
not your burden to bear, it's Christ's. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord, that just as you did with Isaiah when you put those burning coals on his tongue, you would purify our tongues so that we speak words of edification to build up, to create, to bring forth your heart, your will in each person here. We pray wherever we've fallen short, Lord, you forgive us. We thank you, your mercy washes us clean. And we're excited, Lord, for what you're doing, not just in us individually, but together. Hallelujah. We love you. Amen. Amen.